Good morning. Welcome to Triad Baptist Church. We're glad that you are with us today. We've got a good crowd here today. It's March. Should be, right? Spring. Winter is coming to a close, hopefully. Fingers crossed. That's my prayer anyway. But we're glad that you guys are with us this morning. Uh, we're headed to Israel in November of this year, and so we've got some spots open. If you're not in our group and you'd like to be, we've got some space available. Email me this week, and we'll try and get you in uh, to that. We're going to have a good time. I'm going to share some photos from my trip to Israel. I was there about six weeks ago. I'm going to share a couple uh, photos from that in the message this morning. One other announcement I want to make is the Circle Makers is a prayer team that meets to pray during the services for pastors, leaders of ministries, and they do that once a month. Uh, there's an info luncheon next Sunday. If you want more information about that, how to get involved, check out our website, and we'd love to have you as a part of that. Glad you're here today. If you have a Bible, find your place in John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9 is where we're going to be. I prefer to be a little more expository than topical, and this sermon kind of lends a little more toward topical. So in an effort to not completely abandon exposition altogether, I'm going to explain some of the context in John 8 before we get to the text reading in John 9. So I want you to know that right out of the gate. In John chapter 8, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking the Kidron Valley, and he can see the Temple Mount of the Second Temple where he's at. I've got a picture of that if you guys want to put that up there. He's trying to work the works of him that sent him. You can see in this photo that bush there, that tree is an olive tree, and you are overlooking the Kidron Valley, and then you can see the Temple Mount. And this is about where Jesus is at in John chapter number 8. He's in the Mount of Olives, and he's headed to the temple doing the works of him that sent him. The next photo is right there at the base of the temple. This is what it would look like today. Of course, the Temple Mount is occupied by the Muslims and has been for several hundred years. But Jesus is teaching right around this spot in John chapter number 8. And in John 8, verses 1 through 11, there is a woman that is brought to Jesus, and she has just been caught in adultery. The Bible says that she was caught in the very act of adultery. She's dragged by the religious leaders, dropped at the feet of Jesus. It doesn't require a lot of imagination to know what it's meaning when it says she was caught in the act of adultery. But as you know, it takes two to tango, and the religious leaders brought the woman, and they did not bring the man. And they brought her before Jesus, and they said, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do? This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Uh, Moses said that she should be stoned. What Moses actually said in Deuteronomy 22:24 is that both parties should be stoned. They failed to bring the man. So this woman is in a vulnerable position, and Jesus protected her as he always did the victims. And that's another sermon for another day, but that's just happened in John 8. At the back end of John 8, verses 12 through 58, Jesus is teaching, but he keeps being interrupted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they keep asking questions, and they keep addressing things, trying to stump up Jesus. Toward the end of the chapter, Jesus cites their father Abraham, and they began to take up stones to stone him. They knew he was claiming to be the Messiah, they were prepared to kill him at that moment. And as they were about to stone him, you can read this in John 8, verse 59, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's crazy to me to think that here are religious leaders who came to the temple, the house of worship, with a woman they've caught in adultery, also with stones to kill somebody. It's amazing that these were the religious leaders and how they came to church. Uh, now, I want to explain a little bit about Jerusalem. It was always, you read in your Bible, that you always go up to Jerusalem. It was not necessarily north to get to Jerusalem, but the elevation required that you, that you climb. It was a very tedious climb to go up to Jerusalem. In addition, when you got to the temple to worship, you would ascend from either the southern steps 
or the eastern steps, and you would wash in the pool of Siloam. This was for physical as well as ceremonial cleansing. I've got a picture of the current pool of Siloam. This is a photo you see from now until that uh, ivy wall. That's the small percentage of the pool of Siloam that the state of Israel has had access to for some time. On the other side of that wall was some barbed wire, and for many years, it was generations of years, uh, that that property belonged to an individual or family. And so the state of Israel has tried for many years to purchase that property under which sits the original rest of the Pool of Siloam. And just recently, when I was there in January, I think December, January, they had acquired that property. Uh, they bought it, they took the man's house away, and now they're digging, they're excavating. And so my hope is that when I come back in November and take some of you with me, that we'll be able to see a little bit more excavation from the Pool of Siloam. But what they would do, show the next slide, guys, is this is a map of what it would have looked like. This would have been a first century rendering. Is that Pool of Siloam there at the bottom, they would make the trip all the way to Jerusalem, they would get to the Pool of Siloam, and then they would wash physically because of the dirty trip that they had been on, and then ceremonially because they were going up the steps, those eastern steps there for the house of worship. They would worship God. If you read in your Bible, uh, traditionally it's Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, those are called the Psalms of Degrees or the Psalms of Ascent. And they would sing those and read those and quote those as they were making the journey to Jerusalem and then as they were ascending those steps. This next photo is a photo that I took. These are the Jesus steps. These are literally the eastern steps that date back to first century that Jesus would have walked on to get to the temple. And all of what I'm sharing with you is important. It's pertinent to the message today because as they were singing the Psalms of Ascents, they were making their way up to Jerusalem, up to the city on the hill to worship. Uh, here are a few of the Psalms. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Uh, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. These are some of the verses that David and other psalmists wrote as they would make their ascent to the temple to worship God. That was probably the case in your car today. You probably quoted a lot of those on your drive here this morning as they did when they went to worship there. Uh, so in John chapter 8 at the very end, it says that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In my estimation, I think he would have gone through the court of the Gentiles and then down these eastern steps because he's going to reference the Pool of Siloam here in a moment. So it's the most crowded part of the temple. It would have been easy for Jesus to get lost in the crowd and evade the Pharisees that were trying to stone him. So with that backdrop of the woman caught in adultery, him claiming equality and even surpassing their father Abraham, claiming to be the Messiah, they pick up stones. He exits toward the eastern, southern part of the temple, down these steps. This is where we pick up our story. So if you're physically able, stand with me as we read John 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning and work our way through this story. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. I want to read verse 4 one more time. The words of Jesus, he said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. I'd like to speak to you this morning on this topic, that the night is coming. When I was a kid, nighttime was the worst. I hated nighttime as a kid because nothing ever fun happened at night. It was boring. Nighttime was for three things, the three Bs, bath, brush, bed. That's what we would do. I hated nighttime. And as a kid, I tried to avoid and evade nighttime as much as I possibly could. Now I'm an adult. I have freedom to do most anything that I want to do at night. I can stay up as late as I want. I can eat anything that I want. I can do anything that I want. And you know what I want to do? I want to sleep. For those of you that have kids, you know this to be true. All we want to do is sleep. I want to uh, share a quote with you from a modern philosopher who's very wise. His name is Bluey's dad. Here's the quote. It seems unfair that people who want to go to bed have to put the people to bed that don't want to go to bed. You found that to be true at your house? Outside of Jesus, Bluey's dad is one of the brightest men in our day today, I'm telling you. We give our kids at our house most of the night to do whatever they'd like to do. You want to watch a show? Fine. You want to watch a movie? We can start one. That's, that's what we'll do. We can play a game. We can have a snack, or we can have a dessert, or we can read a book, or we can play with toys. But when dad says it's time to go to bed, and mom says it's time to go to bed, it's time to go to bed. Three Bs. Bath, brush your teeth, get in the bed. That's what we're going to do. If it were only that simple. My kids are 10, almost 8, and 2, almost 3. My kids could teach a master class on stall tactics and I don't know where they got that from, but I remember being like that myself when I was a kid. We have a third child. Her name is Sophia, and she has changed the game at our house as most third-born children do. We affectionately, sometimes we will call her Sophia the first, and other times Sophia the worst. She is great at our house, and we love her. She has a bedtime routine that is very complicated, but Desiree's got it down. She does it the same thing every night, and it's no problem. But it's tiring, and it's taxing. And so one night recently, I decided, you know what? Why don't you take the night off? I'm going to step in. I think I've got this bedtime routine down with Sophia. Big mistake. I should have consulted Bluey's dad on that. It all started when I fixed her toothbrush for her. She has to get her stool and then climb up from her stool onto the toilet next to the sink and then fix her own toothbrush using way more toothpaste than is necessary. And then I brush her teeth, and then she brushes her teeth, and then she rinses her mouth herself, and she has to pour the water in the cup, because if you pour it in the cup, she will dump it out, turn on the water, get her cup filled, and leave the water running while she rinses her mouth out. It's a very tedious process, but this is what we do. Then there's a certain book that has to be read while sitting in a certain chair. Then we sing a certain song, and then she turns on her sound machine and the nightlight, and she plays her Tony on a particular song. Finally, we close the door to a particular chant. And if you get the chant wrong, we start over. (laughs) She says the chant, it's four phrases. Then Desiree repeats the chant, four phrases. And if you repeat it and you get it out of order, we start the process over. You have a kid like this? Here's the chant. I don't know where it came from, but she says the same thing every night. Merry Christmas Eve. Love you. See you next time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I read it 
because I've written it down many times, because if I get it wrong, we're starting the whole game over again. Why do kids do this? Why don't they want to go to bed? I think Bluey's dad was right. Life just isn't fair. But in a realistic sense, the night is coming. I would not be your friend today if I did not tell you that the night is coming for Christians living in America. I would love to tell you that everything's going to be okay. And if you follow Jesus, you decide to step out in faith and become a follower of Jesus, I would love to tell you that it's all rainbows and roses for the rest of your life, that people are suddenly going to like you, that people are going to agree with you, and they're going to think that the fact that you're in church today is awesome. I would love to tell you that that is the case, but I would not be your friend by telling you that because it, it isn't true. Things are bad, and I have a feeling they're going to get worse. Jesus knew that things were about to get bad in John 9, which is why he said, I'm trying to work the works of him that sent me while it's day, because the night is coming when no man can work. He was not far from the cross in John 9. Three thoughts this morning from this passage as we consider the truth that night is coming. If you're taking notes, write down number one, we see a difference in perspective. A difference in perspective. We read it before, I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. And as he passed by, as he's leaving the temple down the eastern steps toward the pool of Siloam, as he passed by, he saw a blind man, a blind man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let me ask you a few questions about this exchange. From what you know of the Word of God in the Bible, was this man a sinner, yes or no? Yes, he was a sinner. Here, here's, a, here's a different question with the same answer. Were his parents also sinners? Yes, they were. And here's a third question with the same answer. Was this man, in fact, born blind? Yes. But his sin and his parents' sin were not the reason that he was born blind. His condition was not a direct result of sin. Sometimes we have problematic challenges that are not the direct result of poor choices. Sometimes poor choices can lead to problematic challenges. But in this case, he has a problematic challenge in that he was born blind, and it was not the result of any sin. Jesus shared a different perspective, though, in verse 3. The disciples want to assume his condition was because of his sin or his parents, right? Jesus says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Could it be that this man is experiencing a challenge not because of a choice that he made or because of a lifestyle his parents lived, but simply because I'm going to do something in his life that will not be able to be explained in your realm of thinking? That's what Jesus is saying there. The disciples assume the worst in other people, and if we want to admit it or not, we are very much like the disciples. You, you skeptical of people? in the community today? Are you skeptical and kind of leery of people around and you tend to assume the worst in other people? I do this. If you're honest, you do this. The disciples did this. Job's friends were the same. You must have sinned against God for this to be happening. There are two perspectives in this change. The first is the disciples' perspective. Letter A, they were consumed with blame. They were consumed with blame. This is the disciples and also us. We're consumed with blame. We have to assign blame to someone or something because nothing is ever my fault. Do you know people like this? Nothing's ever their fault. It's always your fault or someone else's fault or some group of people's fault. It's always the fault of someone else. It's never my fault. Our culture is consumed with assigning blame. 
Everybody in our culture today, except these two people, everybody wants to blame the millennials or everyone wants to blame Gen Z. And I'm a millennial. And you know who I want to blame? The boomers. That's who I want to blame. Everybody wants to blame somebody that's not them for the problems that we have today. Let's blame this country. Let's blame this political party. Let's blame this group or this ethnicity or this class of people. Let's blame someone. We have to have someone or something to blame. Privilege is a huge word in our society today. I want you to help me with an exercise, okay? If you are currently married to someone, would you please stand just for a minute? I want to see who the married people are in the room. Some men are confused by the question. Just stand if you're sitting <laughs> next to your spouse. <clears throat> this is fairly recent. You can look this up. You've heard of white privilege and male privilege and education privilege. This is the new one now. You ready for it? It's called couple privilege. Couple privilege. You people are the problem. Let me tell you why. Society accommodates you and gives you certain advantages that single people just don't have. Congratulations, married couples. You're the worst. You can sit down. Why do we do this? Because we're consumed with blame. We got to blame someone. We got to blame something. So let's just pick something to blame. Let's pick someone with a privilege that we ourselves don't have and let's fault them because they are the problem. By blaming someone or something else, it alleviates our own blame, our own responsibility. Jesus wasn't saying that this man wasn't a sinner. And Jesus wasn't saying that his parents weren't sinners. But he was saying that their sin that they had was not the result of this man being born blind. Here's a side note. Let me just ask you this. Could it be possible that you're in a tight spot in your life today for the sole purpose of God receiving glory for what he's about to do? Could it be that it's not the result of your poor choices or your mistakes or your problems or someone else's? Could it just be that you're in a tight spot in your life today simply for the sole purpose that Jesus is going to receive glory in himself because of what he's putting you through? It's very possible in your life. By the way, this was not a religious problem. It was a societal problem. It was then and it is today because we're still assigning blame. Hey, Jesus, who was the sinner here? Who was the bigger sinner? In John 8, they were trying to blame the woman caught in adultery. Then they were trying to find blame in Jesus for how he handled the situation. And now his disciples are trying to assign blame to a man that has been born blind. We see letter A, they were consumed with blame, but Jesus offers a different perspective here. Letter B, he was concerned with the big picture. He said, I'm not, I'm not looking at this isolated event or this specific man or this specific sin. I, I've got a big picture in mind of what I want to do in this man's life that's going to have broader ramifications than just this man or just you because it's not just about you. Jesus was concerned with the big picture. He had another perspective in mind. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That word displayed is sometimes rendered manifested, and it's the Greek word phinereo, and it means to make visible, to put something on display, to manifest it, to make visible. I'll give you three examples of when this Greek word was used in the New Testament. Jesus said in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation when he was put on display for all of us. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, this is when he comes again. He will appear, he'll be displayed, manifested for all of us. 
a third occasion of this Greek word in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is when we're on display and we're standing before God. Hopefully, between us and God is the blood of Christ because of the salvation and propitiation for our sins. But we will appear. We will be put on display someday. That's the word he uses here. Could it not be that I want to display my works in him? Jesus, you guys, he's saying, you guys are concerned with semantics, but I'm trying to do a real work in this man's life. God has a plan and a big picture for your life, even though you may not see it today. <clears throat> I'm going to nerd some of you out with this next illustration, but I'm decided I'm going to do it anyway. I like to do puzzles at my house. How many of you are puzzle people? Let me see your hands if you like to do puzzles. Okay, I'm among some friends. It's good. It, it drives my wife nuts because I have puzzle pieces sometimes all over the kitchen table, and she's not as much of a puzzle person as I am. And if that didn't weird you out, I'll take it a step further. Uh, I've got a handful of Star Wars puzzles at my house that I, that I like to do. I saw some of you just pump your fist and some of you just roll your eyes. It's okay. I'm going to share a piece with you. You, you can't see it very well here, but I want to show it to you. This is a, a piece of a puzzle called Classic Trilogy Panoramic. This is a 500-piece puzzle um, that I have at my house. Now, you can't see this picture, but I took a picture for you to look at. This is what this piece actually looks like. Can you see it there? Yeah, that's what it, that's what it looks like. This is, uh, this is a Star Wars character that's face is on this piece. Now, you can't see it well here. You can see it better on the screen. But if you take out a 500-piece puzzle and the first piece you look at is this one, you're probably not going to be very excited to do this puzzle. Uh, here's a better picture of him. His character's name is Bib Fortuna. This is what he looks like. This is a terrifying person, right? You feeling good about how you came to church today? You should be feeling a little bit better looking at this guy. His name is Bib Fortuna. I actually had to look that up. I'm not that much of a nerd. If you knew that, good for you. But if you were to, no one would want to put a puzzle together of this guy. Now, now here's the next picture. This is what the puzzle actually looks like when it's done. This is the puzzle. And if you see, not everything in this puzzle is great. You got Darth Vader there in the middle. You got Darth Sidious over on this side. And if you look very carefully, just above Jabba the Hutt, you can see Bib Fortuna. Now, I, I know I just weirded some of you out. And none of you have followed me for any of this, but follow me here, okay? This is what God has put together in your life is this picture. It's a big picture. And there's a lot of things that are going to happen in your life. And some of them are good. You see that sweet lightsaber? That's a good thing in your life. But you see some of the bad parts? That's part of your puzzle. It's part of your life. And what God has in mind for your life is a big picture. It's a puzzle that involves hundreds and thousands of pieces over the course of your life. And if you choose to, you can focus on this. Look here. You can spend your whole life focused on this. Some of you are going through some bad puzzle pieces in your life today. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're going through. But somebody you love is sick. Somebody you love is dying. And some finances are not working out like you think they should. And some relationship failure has happened in your life. And you're striving and you're fighting. And you got problems at work and you got problems with your kids. And you got problems with your grandkids. And you got people you love that are living a lifestyle that you don't agree with. And you can focus on this piece in your life. But this piece is a very small portion of the big picture of the puzzle. God wants to do so many things in your life. Don't spend your life spinning your wheels focused on one small piece of tragedy or missed opportunity or failure or mistakes or storms or trials or sickness or rainy days. God wants to do something in your life that's so much bigger than one small piece of what you're going through. If you want, you can spend your whole life 
worrying about this individual piece of your puzzle or that individual piece of your puzzle, or you can trust that God has a big picture in mind for you. Jesus offers us a different perspective. It doesn't have to be who sinned here and who's the bigger sinner and what should we do with this woman. It doesn't have to be that. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work something big picture in your life. Don't focus on the individual pieces that you don't like. Number one is a difference in perspective. Number two is a deterioration in program. A deterioration in program. Verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. I love a good program. When I go to a play or a theater, I always get a program because I want to know what is going on. We'll have productions here in this room for our academy, and they involve all the elementary or all the school or whatever. And when I come in the doors, I, I always get a program because I have one question. When are my kids doing something? That's all I want to know. Your kids are great. Other people's kids are fine. I didn't come here for them, okay? You understand this. You don't just go to random events involving kids that aren't yours. I mean, most of the time we go to events, we go for our kids. And if there was a production that my kids are not involved in, but your kids are, no disrespect, I'm probably not going to come. I came to see my kids. We have a program. We have an order of service for this service. I knew we were going we to rock out to graves in the gardens this morning. I knew it was coming. Run to the Father. I knew it was coming. We have an order of service for what we do here. And if there was a program that the disciples would have crafted for the life of Jesus, it would have gone like this. Let me tell you the order of service that the disciples would have put together. Okay, we're going to start the service with John the Baptist introducing Jesus. Okay? And Jesus is going to come, he's going to heal the sick, he's going to perform various miracles, he's going to preach uh, strange, compelling sermons, and people are going to be drawn to him, and they're going to get saved by the droves, and they're going to be added to the kingdom of God. And then the Pharisees that hate us, they're going to realize he's the Messiah, and they're going to get saved too, and Rome's not going to like it. And then Jesus is going to conquer and defeat Rome, and then he's going to set up his earthly kingdom, he's going to choose which of us disciples are the greatest in the kingdom, and then he's going to rule on the throne of David, and we're going to help him rule, and then we're going to take an offering and close in a word of prayer that was their order of service that's what they thought was going to happen but the program that jesus was following was very different than what the disciples wanted have you found this to be true in your life that the program you're following the order of service you're getting it out and you're like well i didn't i didn't see this in here who who added this hey, hey god here's the order of service that i have for my life can, can you take this and just look it over and we expect god to say Oh, wow, Jason, these are some great notes. I had not given thought to any of this stuff. This is great. You, is this what you want? Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll sign off on this. I'll make it happen. That's how we expect our program for life to go. It hasn't gone that way for me, and it hasn't gone that way for you. Jesus doesn't like to follow our plans. In verse 4, Jesus makes three statements as he explains the program that's about to deteriorate the plans of the disciples. Here's what he says, number one. The obstacles are climbing. The obstacles are climbing. It's about to get a little bit harder. It's about to get a little bit tougher. There's some things that you have not foreseen that are going to happen in the next few days, in the next few weeks, in the next few months. I'm not going to be with you always. We have to work the works of him that sent me while it is day. It's becoming more and more difficult for Christians all over the world and also here in America. The Christianity that Jesus promoted was a sacrificial, leaving father and mother and houses and lands and carry your cross type of Christianity. It's what Jesus promoted on earth. 
And today, it's more about amenities that a church can offer and the size of the attendance and the size of a budget. It's a very different standard of success now compared to what it was then. I would love to tell you that following Jesus means that life will get better and easier for you. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, right? Not necessarily, not necessarily in 2023. Paul said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. James said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Peter said, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. Why would we expect different treatment as followers of Jesus than Jesus and his followers in first century had? Why would we expect life to be beautiful always with no pain and no suffering ever? It doesn't make sense because the obstacles are climbing. Let her be under this thought. The opportunities are closing. The opportunities are closing. Oh, how do you know that? There are things that we have an opportunity to do today that we will not have opportunity to come in the near future. How do you know that? Because there are things that we used to have the opportunity to do that we no longer have even in America, even in the greatest country on the face of the earth. We still can't do some things that we used to do, which means it leads me to believe that there will be freedoms in the future that are also taken away that we can't do then that we can't do now because the obstacles are climbing, the opportunities are closing. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming. Jesus knew for the disciples and the people to whom he was speaking, life was about to get a little bit darker. He knew the cross was coming. They didn't understand it, but he knew things were going to get darker. You guys been outside lately? It's getting a little bit darker in our culture, in our society. You guys read any of those missionary updates we send out on the daily prayer chain? You guys turned on the news lately? I'm not a spiritual meteorologist, but it seems to be getting pretty dark outside. I don't know if you've noticed. If your definition of life is according to the word of God, it's getting dark out there. If your definition of a man and a woman is according to the word of God, it's getting dark out there. If your definition of traditional marriage is in line with Scripture, it's getting dark outside. If your definition of Jesus is in line with what the Bible says, it's getting very dark outside. Jesus warned his disciples, and he warns us today, night is coming. Our culture is decaying at an alarming rate. I don't know if you've noticed. I hope I'm not surprising any of you today, but it's decaying at an alarming rate. We're, we're no longer post-Christian. It's more like anti-God, anti-Jesus, anti-Scripture, anti-truth. The environment is desperately seeking to brainwash us and our children. Hey, as a side note, I'll tell you this. You better tell your children who they are. You better explain to them who they are and how God created them because if you don't, some school teacher will, some coach will, some school counselor will, some TikToker will, they will explain to your kids who they are if you don't show them from the Bible who they are because it's getting dark outside. In an effort to reprogram our society and it's working, the opportunities we've had are quickly closing. Time is running out. Jesus says the night is coming. The obstacles are climbing. The opportunities are closing. Number three, under this point, the opposition is changing. Opposition is changing. In Jesus' day, Sunrise was the beginning of the workday. There was no electricity. There was no third shift. There was no Wi-Fi. Okay? So when it got dark, the workday was over. The less work could be accomplished. I won't say the name of the school because they're in our area, and I love this, this school. 
But I graduated from a Christian high school in our area that's not 10 minutes from here. I grew up at this place, and I love this place. And one of the things I did when I graduated high school, um, since then, I would go back for basketball games at this place. And it's a, it's a great atmosphere. It's a big gym. There's a ton of seats in there. It's a good atmosphere. And probably 10 to 12 times since I've graduated, I will go to a basketball game at this gym. And sometimes I'll wear like an alumni shirt, and sometimes I'll wear my, my letterman's jacket. I'm always very warmly received there. It's, it's, it's a great place, and I've always enjoyed it. Um, but when it t- came time for us to put our kids in school, we didn't put them at this place because we go to church here, and we have a school here, so we put them in school here. And so, so my kids are in the service today. They're triad titans, and they've always been triad titans. And so I'll, I'll go to a game at this place, and I'll have a good time, and I'll see familiar faces, and it's great. Something happened uh, recently. Michael, you were there. Something happened recently. I went to the same gym, the same place, where I had, I had gone many times before, but the difference was the Triad Titans were in town and they were playing against that school. And so I didn't wear an alumni shirt that night. I didn't wear a Letterman jacket that night. I wore a hoodie that was prominently displayed Triad Titans. And I walked into the gym and everything was different. It was so weird. I walked in and they said, you here for the game? And I said, yeah, you, you, you know me. I, I come to a lot of games. You know who I am. And they're like, hmm, I see your hoodie. And I said, yeah, yeah, our, our kids, you know, they go to the school. and we're, our, You know, they're playing you guys tonight. And, and I'm telling you, I've always been warmly received. They, they weren't rude or unkind, but it was like, huh, oh, hey. Like, like they didn't know who I was suddenly. And uh, I've spent hundreds of hours in this gym. And uh, they said, you're here for the game? I said, yeah. They said, that'll be $8. And I said, $8? I've never paid to come to, to a game here. I, I have to pay to watch them play? And they're like, we just, um, based on your hoodie, we feel like you should pay to come in tonight. And I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll pay. So I, I got out my $8, and, and I paid my $8. And they said, uh, we have a section for you guys right here. And it said, visitor section. And I said, what? I sit, I sit in the visitor section now? And it was, it was cold in there, and it was uncomfortable, and it was awkward. And I, I'm, I'm being silly. I'm joking. It wasn't that bad. They weren't rude or unkind. It was fine, I guess. But the principle is this. I quickly realized I was not representing the home team anymore. Here's the point for us. As Christians and followers of Jesus living America, I hate to break it to you. We're not representing the home team anymore. I hate to say that because we were founded on Christian principles and we have a lot of great stuff in our history uh, concerning Christianity, but we're not post-Christian anymore. We're very anti-Jesus, anti-God today. And you are not representing the home team anymore. As followers of Jesus living in America, you no longer represent the home team. We used to have a home field advantage, not any longer. Uh, The crowd no longer supports us. The media no longer covers us. The majority used to either agree with us or they would disagree with us respectfully. Not anymore. Not because we've aligned with Jesus. If you are a committed follower of Jesus, you are no longer on the home team. Don't expect their cheers. Don't expect their applause. Don't expect their support. Because we're not on the home team anymore. The opposition has changed. And the more serious you are about your faith, the more divisive it will become. You ever gone to a road team's gym? You ever gone as a, as a player and to a, to a road game and in their gym and you miss a shot? They're yelling brick. They're yelling terrible things at you. God forbid you airball a shot. You will not hear the end of it for the rest of the game. 
They are actively rooting and cheering against us today. Do you know why? Because you've aligned yourself with Scripture and you've aligned yourself as a follower of Jesus. And the more serious you are about that, the more divisive it will become in the future. The fans are actively rooting against us and they say, hey, we're not Christian America that you used to remember. You're the road team now. You sit in this section. You do what we say. The opposition is changing. Jesus offers us a different perspective he warns us about the deterioration in program. Number three, and we're almost done this morning, we see a deliverance in progress. Look at verse number five. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This man was healed, but his healing was in two parts. Kind of like you're saved in two parts, by grace through faith. By grace is, is his part, and through faith is, is ours. And the blind man was delivered, but it was, a, it was a deliverance and progression, and God is doing the same deliverance in us. It's a process. It's sanctification. It takes time. A few weeks ago, we learned about a man in Mark 8 who was also healed of blindness but these men were two different men. This was two separate occasions. In Mark 8 and in John 9. In Mark 8, this happened in Bethsaida. But in John 9, this happened on the temple steps. In Mark 8, people brought the blind man to Jesus. But in John 9, Jesus just happened to pass by. In Mark 8, people were begging Jesus to heal this man. But in John 9, our guy nobody cared about. In Mark 8, it was spit only. And in John 9, it was spit and mud. This man was a deliverance in progress. The mud had to be applied, and then he had to go wash. Two forms of deliverance in this passage. The first is obvious. It's physical deliverance. Physical deliverance. He was literally healed of his sight. A man born blind who had never seen is now able to see. Look at verse number 25. Drop down. This man is giving testimony. He's answering for what happened. He answered, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Hey, hey I, I'm not really good at theology. I don't understand the semantics and the traditions of you guys, you Pharisees. You seem pretty serious dudes. But honestly, for me, all I know is I was blind and now I'm able to see. That was his testimony. That's all I can say. I was born this way, I've never been able to see anything, and now I see each of you individually in front of me. I've never seen before, now I can see. All I can tell you is, I was blind, and now I can see. He said, I can't, I can't speak to all the rest. It required him, though, getting a little dirty in the process. I'll tell you what, I was never born blind, I've never not been able to see, but I will tell you, when a man spits in the dirt and makes mud and puts it on my face and my eyes, can we agree that would be a little uncomfortable for you? I don't know that that's ever happened to anyone in here, but if, if there is, you can let me know how uncomfortable that was. It would be awkward. It would be uncomfortable. Then he has to descend the temple steps, passing by people he had never seen, but people who had always seen him. This is where his spot was at the temple steps. That would have been uncomfortable. Then he had to get to the bottom of the steps, and he had to wash in the pool of Siloam. That would have been uncomfortable. But he did it all without hesitation because he wanted to be healed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want Jesus, as he's passing by, to touch you and do something in your life? Are you willing to put some work into it? Are you willing to experience some discomfort? 
Sometimes we get so casual and so uh, we just want to sit at the temple steps. We're comfortable here. We know we need to change. We know we're not complete yet. We know there's some things that's wrong in our lives. We see Jesus passing by, but sometimes we're just content to just say, hey, you know, I just, I don't want to get uncomfortable. I don't want to get awkward. I don't want to be put out. Now, I can't heal you physically today. This is not that kind of place, but I can introduce you to one who can heal you spiritually. That's letter B and we're done. Spiritual deliverance. I love this next verse. I'm going to read verse 27, but before I do, I want to set it up. The Pharisees are interrogating this man. Here's a man who was born blind. He's never been able to see, and then all of a sudden, a man passes by, spits in the dirt, wipes mud on his face, tells him to go wash, and now he's able to see. And the Pharisees are like, this should not happen. I want to know what happened to you. So they're inquiring. Look at verse number 27. And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that he says that to the Pharisees. Why are you asking me? Is it because you want to follow him? I don't know about you. I'm in. I'm going to follow this guy. Do you guys want in too? He had no idea who he was talking to. He's implying, I want to do this. Do you want to come too? Drop down to verse number 38. This is him speaking to Jesus. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Today you can experience the same spiritual deliverance as this man by placing your faith in Jesus. I've said it before, there's a million ways to get to Jesus, but there's only one way to get to God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In verse four, Jesus said, we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. I don't want to mislead you today. Time is running out. You are not on the home team anymore, and night is coming. We read a portion of this verse earlier. Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. That's John 16, But then he goes on to say, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's like that dark night quote. The night is darkest just before the dawn, and dawn is coming. John 4, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is a deliverance in progress. I don't know about you, but that's my story. That's your story. This man had no help, no home, and no hope until Jesus passed by. Has Jesus passed by in your life? Romans 5 says, When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. And he said, Peradventure, for a good man some would even dare to die. But God expressed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever experienced that kind of healing? Uh, a lot of us have cameras on our phones now. Maybe you, have, maybe you have a phone like this. And one of the things that I like to do um, when I have my phone, I did this yesterday with a group of family, is I, I took a selfie. Do you guys like selfies? you guys like to take selfies? I want to take one here with my friends, Phil and Karen. Look here. Look here. Smile <laughs> at me. Ready? Okay. Let me have you look at the picture. You like that? Is that good with you? Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. They both agree. What they can't see is, I took this photo, I just let them look at it for a second, but in this photo, uh, Karen has a beautiful smile, Phil's doing his best, um, but of me, I have my eyes closed, I have my eyes closed, and I did that on purpose because they approved the photo. They didn't look at me at all. What do you do when you take a selfie? Where do you look first? You look at yourself. We always look at ourselves. 
How many times have you taken a photo, you've taken a selfie, and it was a good one of you and your spouse, and all your kids are looking at the camera and smiling. You go with it. You post it. It doesn't matter if someone's cut in half out of the frame. It doesn't matter if people are making a dumb face, or they got their mouth hanging open, or their eyes are closed. It doesn't matter. If it's a good one of me, I'm going with it, right? We've all done it. And if they would have had me post it, it would have been the worst picture of me and a great picture of them. Why do we do that? Psychologically, it's because we are prone to finding ourselves in the photo. Every photo you're in, that's what you do first, is you try to find yourself in the photo. You know where you're at in this photo in John 9? Can I tell you? You're the blind man. You're the blind man. You are the man born blind. You've never been able to see. And then someday Jesus just happens to pass by. He spits in the ground, he puts mud on your face, and now you're able to see. And my testimony, like many of you, is, oh, I can't answer all your theological questions. All I know is I was blind, and now I'm able to see. That is spiritual deliverance. That's where you fit in the story. And I would tell you today, Jesus is passing by. Maybe you're saved, maybe you're not. Jesus is passing by. Do you want to be healed? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? Have you experienced spiritual deliverance? If not, can I just give you one warning? Jesus said, we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day because the night is coming when no man can work. Let me have your heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's pray this morning. In a moment, our praise team is gonna sing. The altar will be open for you to come if you have a need. It's interesting about the Pharisees and the disciples in this passage in John 9 is they were all concerned with the wrong things. Their questions, hey, who was it that sinned? Who was the bigger sinner? What was the cause of the blindness? Who can we blame? And I'll tell you, none of that mattered then and none of it matters now. It doesn't matter the sins that you've done. All of us are sinners. We're all in the same boat. But it doesn't matter what sins you've committed and it doesn't matter how big of a sinner you are or who you've blamed for your sin in the past. Jesus is passing by and he says to us today, do you want to be well? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed spiritually? None of that mattered then. It doesn't matter now because if you need spiritual healing that only Jesus can bring, you've come to the right place. Is there anyone today in this room who would lift their hand and say, Jason, that's me. I have never met Jesus, but I know he's passing by, and I know that I want to be healed. Anyone like that today that would just lift your hand up? I won't call you out. I just want to pray for you. Say, yeah, that's me. I've never experienced spiritual healing. Anyone like that this morning? If you lifted your hand, you can pray right there in your seat and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You can express your belief in him, and him alone is your only means of salvation and ask him to become Lord of your life. On the authority of his word, he will save you. For those of you that have experienced the spiritual touch of Jesus, you're already followers. Can I just encourage you that the night is coming? Are you focused on the right things? This is a passage of priority and urgency. And Jesus says we must work the works of him that sent us while it's day because the night is coming. I fear that some people have been Christians for many, many years, decades even. They've just been sitting at the temple steps for a long time now, just waiting for something to happen. Take this as your encouragement this morning. Jesus said, stop waiting around. 
Work the works of him that sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no man can work. Father, you've seen our hands, but more importantly, you know our hearts. And I pray that you'd move for just a moment in this invitation service. Father, if there's one here today that is not 100% sure that they have a relationship with you and that if they were to die today, that heaven would be their home, I pray that they would come. I pray that they talk to one of us. I pray that they would, by faith, trust in your saving power today that they would be healed spiritually. God, for those of us who have been believers for some time, I pray that we would buckle up for the road ahead. God, night is coming. We're not on the home team anymore. God, I pray that you would strengthen us as believers, help us to be true in our commitment to you and to our faith and to your word because night is coming. God, for those of us that have been on the temple steps for far too long, I pray that today would be the day we jump out. We would get involved. We would make a difference with the time that we have left that you would be pleased in that. Bless the remainder of our service. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.